I begin today by acknowledging the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, traditional custodians of the land on which I record this podcast, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples have an intrinsic connection to this land and have cared for country for over 60,000 years, with their way of life having been devastated by colonisation. Hi and welcome to Social Work Spotlight, where I showcase different areas of the profession each episode. I'm your host, Yasmeen McKee-Wright, and today's guest is Patricia. Born in Zambia, Patricia has qualifications in social work and social policy, and her experience spans working in government and non-government organisations, and co-authoring the chapter of a clinical handbook in adolescent medicine. Her experience as a mother of a child with a terminal illness inspired her to write a book, and she's now working on a follow-up novel. Thanks so much, Patricia, for joining me on the podcast today. I'm so excited to have a chat with you about your experience. Mm -hmm. I'd love to know, firstly, when you began as a social worker and what brought you to the profession? Okay, when did I begin as a social worker? It was not a straightforward journey to become a social worker. Mm -hmm. When I finished school, I went to university. I lived in Zambia and I went to a Catholic school, high school, finished school, went to the University of Zambia, which was the only university then. I went to university and I was studying law at the University of Zambia. Mm -hmm. So social work was not even on the radar. It was not something I even thought about. I was going to be a lawyer and I was going to work at the International Court of Justice. When I finished my law degree, that was the goal, that I'd go and work at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. That was the dream. Mm. So what happened is in my third year at university, my dad sent me to a college in North Carolina in the USA to study. My two brothers were already studying in the USA. A few months after I left, my parents went to live in Australia. My dad became the high commissioner for Zambia to Australia. So very excited, going to school in America. I went to a place called Bennett College. It's in Greensboro in North Carolina. You know, and I was a bit late, of course, coming from Africa. By the time we got everything arranged and got tickets and papers, I arrived, I think, about three weeks after the semester had began. Everybody had already chosen their subjects, you know, done everything. So I arrived late and I had to go and do my registration on my own. Mm-hmm. So when I got there, you know, the international student advisor took me, went to register. And I was told that I could not get any of my credits from law school. Oh. And out of all the three years that I was at university, they would only take two of the courses, which was an English course and a maths course, I think it was. That That's was horrible. It. And I was sitting there going, are you kidding? And they said, no, everything else you've done is irrelevant here if you want to study law. Because in America, they have four years of pre-law and then three years of law school. So that's seven years. And I said, that will make it 10 years I've been at uni. And I said, that's not happening. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just like, no, I can't. Sorry. And the thing was, even if I did go and do law in America, I would not be able to use that law to work in Zambia or in Australia because it's American law. So I thought, what's the point of doing a law degree, which I won't be able to use when I go back? It didn't make sense. Mm -hmm. 
And at that time, they advised me that, okay, for this year, just take general subjects. And then at the end of the year, you can decide what you want to major in. So I just sort of like enrolled in whatever classes, you know, physics, chemistry, business admin, computers, whatever, everything. And I just happened to have some social work and psychology classes as well. Mm -hmm. So that's how I fell into social work. So when the year was almost finished, the head of um, social work department came to me and said, Patricia, you're a natural. You need to be doing social work. You excel. You know, you're one of my best students. You need to actually think about it very seriously. And at the time, I just didn't, because I didn't get what I wanted, I didn't really care. So I said, oh, fine, whatever, you know. So I ended up doing a major in social work with a minor in psychology. Mm-hmm. And at the end of my degree, I finished in about three years, two and a half years, and got a certificate of merit for excellent work in social work. Yeah. So that's where my journey started. Working with people with disabilities, one of the first placements I went to as part of my degree, you know, in the last year, we did a few placements. And one of the first placements was an early education center for kids with disabilities. So that was my first time to be thrown into an arena with kids with varying disabilities. And it was very daunting at first, but after a few days, a few weeks, it was like, yeah, I actually enjoyed the work and found that I had an affinity to working with people with disabilities. So that's how I ended up doing social work. It was not something I planned, but it's something that I sort of fell into. Yeah. And To your knowledge, was the way the course was structured in the US similar to how we do it here in terms of you've got your two placements, you do like similar subjects? Since I'd never been to school here, I don't know. But when they did an assessment, of course, when you come to Australia, they do an assessment to see whether and you you give your transcript and everything, see if it's Mm -hmm. comparable to the social work here, which they found that it was comparable. And so my degree and my subjects were accepted. I did a little bit more. I think I had four placements in one year. Okay, wow. Yeah. So I had, it was like an early childhood education center. And I worked with people who are disadvantaged in a TAFE, Mm. teaching them skills, you know, how to present themselves, how to write resumes and all that. So helping them to be able to set themselves up to do that. And then I worked in a hospital setting with a social worker. And what was the other one? Oh, gifted kids. Okay. A school for gifted kids. So those were the four placements that I had. Yeah, but I think the one that resonated most was working with kids with disabilities. Mm, that's super interesting that there was funding and placements for gifted kids because yeah. I guess you, you would expect that they've got everything. Well, they would be they would have less experiences of disadvantage, perhaps. But I'm guessing your experience was quite different once you got there. Yeah, it was. I was surprised as well, but they have so many issues and problems as well, not fitting in. Mm. So they needed social workers to help them to adjust and different programs to help them find the level that they can work at. Yeah. You know, apart from being at school, even at home, what sports they could play, how they would fit in. They felt out of place mm. was um, one of the common things. So either they went into, they were put ahead with kids who are older and they didn't fit in because they were still young. Yeah. And either they were stayed in the classes that they were with and they were not challenged. So we were just working with them, helping to find a medium where they could be happy, Mm. you know, and trying to see what adjustments they needed and what support 
and the parents what support they needed to be able to help the kids as well. Yeah, and probably working with the parents to kind of curb that enthusiasm or expectation for the kids so that they felt like, you know, this isn't the end of the world if I don't achieve what's expected of me. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Okay, so the one that resonated for you most was the intellectual disability, working with kids. Did that then inform your first role, what you looked for? So they had different disabilities. Okay. Some were blind, some had physical disabilities, so there was a range of disabilities. Yeah, right. Yeah. So then you finished uni, it's a horrible time to just kind of feel like, where do I start? I don't know if I'm confident. Yeah. Where did you start? <laughs> when I went back to Zambia, I actually got a job in what was called Workman's Compensation Fund Control Board. Okay. It's like a pension scheme. Right. But it's specific to people injured in, well, it would be probably like eye care or motor accident authority, Mm. but it's specific to people who are injured on the job. So it doesn't matter which job. Yeah. So different injuries. Some people are working in mines, some were on the factory floor or whatever. People who have been injured. So this was a scheme where employers paid into Mm. an insurance scheme. And if their um, workers were injured, we took over the care of that. So I was what was called a pensions officer. So working with people who have had an injury and cannot work anymore, or those who have had an amputation or life-limiting injury, trying to find them a place where they can be comfortable. If there's anything they can do, finding them work that they can do. But most of the people I helped was different things. Like I got very good at helping people get new limbs, you know, simple things like that, or minors whose hearing was damaged. So I got to know all about how to make artificial legs and being able to work with the companies who are providing them because we had to pay for everything. So Mm -hmm. it's it's really similar to what I was doing with iCare. Different sorts of things. I was buying coffins for people who died. I was doing a lot of different things, working with different companies who are making wheelchairs, who are making different equipment, so purchasing equipments and even um, I got to do things like help people make business plans because mm. people who they got a payout, I had to sit with them and what is going to happen with this payout so that it's not squandered. Yeah. What's your next step in life since you can't do what you are doing? Some of the women set up like market stores or opened a stand, you know, where they could sell vegetables. Some people wanted a shop where they could do stuff. They could sit down and do stuff. Some people up in hair salons. So everybody had a different thing that they could do. So I had to sit down and do a life plan for them. Where do you go from here? How can we help with the money you're getting? Some people opted to get the money on a monthly basis for the rest of their life. So it might be a smaller amount, whatever it was, like $100 a month for the rest of their life. Some people opted, like, I'll get the lump sum. But we had to make sure what are they going to do with it before it was given out. So they had to have a plan. So I'd sit with them and write out a plan of what they're going to do with the, with the lump sum that they get. So that was quite an interesting job. I didn't know what I was doing from day to day because it was so different. I just feel like for your first rollout, what diversity, what incredible challenge, but also did you ever f- get the feeling that who am I coming into this? I'm so young. I don't have the life experience. Was that ever an issue for you? No. No? I think... I might be wrong, but I think coming from America, everybody had high regard. Right. <laughs> you know, oh, she came from America. Oh, she's got an American degree. It was like, wow, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's like whatever I said was like, uh, you know, credible. <laughs> and I was just yeah. a young lady. But, yeah, it was like a privilege to them to have somebody who's educated, in, you know, yeah. in America to come and work there. 
And I did know my stuff, but a lot of what I learned went in, so I was able to be articulate and be able to help. And I actually enjoyed the job. I think that was the main thing. And people mm-hmm. could see that I actually enjoyed myself. And I think I found that I'm really good at talking to people at whatever levels. Some people are living in like typical compounds. I don't know what compounds are like, whether you've got an idea of what compounds in Africa are, where I had to take like a Land Rover to be able to go to the places where they lived because mm-hmm. the roads were so bad and you couldn't drive a car there. But I actually enjoyed the job. Yeah, I was actually helping people, you know, bringing them stuff and making sure, you know, whatever they needed, whatever, and I'd like have a plan and identify what they needed to get that their life back on track or to a better place than they, they were, help the family and help, you know. So I really, really enjoyed that job. And I think I felt, which is surprising, I felt really comfortable and competent with what I was doing. I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. I just sat there and, yeah, jumped off the deep end, literally. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any other social workers that you worked with or any really good mentors that helped guide you through? Not particularly. There was one lady who had been sitting in the position before I came. She wasn't a qualified social worker. I think it's, you know, in those days, people just got a job and they start in admin and they work their way up. So she was an older lady and she showed me the ropes, like I was doing your job. This is what I was just holding the fort. And she showed me what was happening and what to do and everything. So, yeah. But other than that, then she stepped back and went to do her normal job. And I was her boss. <laughs> so okay. she would come and, you know, can I help you with anything? And whenever I needed advice or anything, she would be there to tell. That's so lovely. Mm. How long were you there for? Um, a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And what prompted the move from there? Well, we moved to Australia. Okay. Yeah. Significant. <laughs> yes. Big so period. you joined mum and dad? No, we didn't actually. Well, we did join them, but that wasn't the reason why we came. Before starting work, at Workman's Compensation Fund Control Board. I got married and had a child. And my husband and I, with my son, who was a few months old, went to live in Scotland. My husband went to study a master's degree in banking and finance in Edinburgh, in Scotland. So I went with him. And over there, I started working actually as a youth worker Mm -hmm. for a regional council there. So working on the docks with kids. Yeah teenagers and young people that was an eye-opener but yes (laughs) it was quite interesting so very different so I've done a lot of varying different roles so these are kids who are out on the streets drinking smoking so it was like in the evening from around five o'clock would have them there was a clubhouse and they would come in and they'll play pool and we'll chat about life and things and we could talk to them and try and provide positive role models for them and also activities in the center darts you know, they had all different things happening in there. The boys would be playing basketball outside and just hanging out with them. So that was an education for me as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, because there's this young Bennett Bell lady wearing nice linen clothes. I had to quickly change what I was wearing yeah. <laughs> and start wearing jeans and sneakers. Yeah. And started working. As I've said, I've loved all the jobs. Even that job, I really loved working with young people. They taught me a lot you know, about life and drugs and things. Because they'll talk to you freely like, ma'am, do you know what this is? It's like, no, you know, they'll tell you exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah, so they gave me an education as well, (laughs) as much as I was teaching them. And yeah, I enjoyed that as well. That was in Scotland, then went back to Zambia, worked for the fund for a little bit longer, then we came to Australia. Mm -hmm. 
And the reason we came to Australia is while I was having my second child, my mom took my oldest son over to Australia with her because I was having a difficult pregnancy. So he up and went with his grandparents and was living in Australia. And I think while he was here is when my parents discovered that he had a rare genetic disorder. And it was just a fluke that they found out something was wrong with him. He was a healthy looking young boy. He just had a normal childhood illness. I think he had um, an ear infection or something. And it just happens that the pediatrician they took him to in Canberra took one look at him and knew what he had because he had worked in the genetics department at the kids' hospital in Camperdown. And he just took one look at him. This is one of those rare one in how many hundred thousand kids have it. And he just took one look at him and suspected that this kid has this. And so my parents asked us to come as soon as I had the baby. I think she was three weeks old when we came, that we needed to come. We thought we were coming. It was a much needed holiday, but it wasn't. Oh, so you didn't know the diagnosis no. when you came? No. Wow. They weren't sure that he just, but he needed to confirm it because we had to have genetic testing. Mm-hmm. So we came over and two days after we came here, my parents said, look, something's wrong with him and we're going to see a specialist in Sydney. I didn't think too much about it. I didn't know what we were getting into. Mm. So came to Sydney, had some genetic testing and yeah, it was, he had what's called MPS2, Hunter syndrome. And that's when we thought, oh, maybe what are we going to do? This is big, you know, and it was a terminal illness in those days. So they told us he would likely live until he was 10 years old. So we thought, well, we need to move here so we can give him the best life that we can while he's here and learn as much as we can so that if we go back to Zambia, we know what we're talking about because we had no idea what it was, what the implications were or what his life was going to be like. So, yeah, while we were here, my husband went and had some job interviews and got a job with the bank. And, yeah, so we moved over. So that was the main reason what made us move to Australia was um, mainly for us to learn what we needed to learn about Wembia's disease and how to look after him. And that's how we ended up in Australia. What a bombshell. You've just given birth to your second child. It was a difficult pregnancy. You get here and just everything falls apart. Yeah, literally. Yeah. How did you manage at the time? Um, I don't know. I think if you get to know me, I'm pretty resilient now. Yeah. And my husband's the same. It was just like, well, this is what has happened. So we just need to get on with it. And we need to look after this kid so he has the best life that he can have. Mm. And that was what we wanted for him. So we moved countries just so that he could have a better life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So when did you manage to get back to work after all that? As soon as I came here, I got a job within a few months. The problem I had was everywhere, I I don't know how many, I think I sent out maybe 100 applications. The sticking issue was you don't have Australian experience. Right. Everywhere I went is you don't have Australian experience. And the first job that I landed, which was also quite a funny story, was with Paraquad Mm -hmm. in Homebush. And I went for the interview. The ad said personal assistant. Okay. Personal assistant means very different things in America and yeah. in Australia. I thought I was going for a job like a secretary. Right. But it was more like attendant care. Yeah. And I could type, you know, having been at a boarding <laughs> school where you learn typing, I could type. I was even saying to them, I can type 30 words a minute or whatever, not realizing that um, this is care. not actually relevant. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't until I was in the interview and they were showing that when I got the job and then I came back and 
they were showing me what I needed to be doing, what my role was that I thought, oh, it's not actually what I thought it was. Yeah. Yeah. It was working with people who have been injured in car accidents and have spinal injuries. So it was very different. But it was all of my jobs have been jobs that I've learned something from and that have helped me with whatever jobs I had. So actually, even though it wasn't the job that I wanted, it was the job that got me the Australian experience. Mm, yeah. After that, I could say I've got the Australian experience. Yeah, got you over that hurdle. Yeah. So I think I stayed there about eight months and learned a lot about disabilities in Australia because you are busy helping people do everyday stuff that they would do in the office, you know. So mm-hmm. that really gave me a, a good idea of what disabilities are. And with Paracord, they're the ones who are sending out stuff. There was all this equipment and everything. So I was getting an education about how things work in Australia as well with people with disabilities. So it was, yeah. it was a great job. There would have been some transferable knowledge, yeah. I imagine, in terms of spinal cord injuries and yeah. looking after people after work accidents. There'd yeah. be a lot of crossover. Yeah, yeah. So that was one of the first jobs that I had. And yeah, so it got me in the market. And from there, I went on to work with an agency called AISH, who worked with people with intellectual disabilities. Mm-hmm. And after that, all the different jobs, you know, Crowd Foundation. Then I went to Urella Community Services. These are all part of the Challenge Foundation under that wing. And yeah, and I was with Urella Community Services, which is a service for people with intellectual disabilities. And they ran from play groups all the way up to group homes. They had sheltered workshops. They had community access programs. And I started there as a training officer with Crow and a training officer training people with intellectual disabilities with different skills, either in the home, they had group homes or in the workshops or liaising with parents and workers. And when they went to work offsite as well, liaising with the different companies that we're working with. Mm-hmm. And the next job was a branch coordinator, which was coordinating the services of Urella, which um, they had different services there. They had a car detailing crew, community access program. They had a early childhood education center for kids with disabilities and a group home. So that was totally different as well. Yeah. So I was there for about six years and yeah, loved it. I was the general manager at Urella for over five years. You know, it was certainly doing individual plans, strategizing for the company, you know, business plans, all sorts of things. It was really a very varied row, very wide row. And that's where I learned to drive my first bus. <laughs> I got my LR license, light yeah. rigid, so I could drive a 28-seater. Wow. Yeah, so, yeah, oh, I learned a lot of skills from there. So, yeah, that was Urella. From there, I went to work for Anglicare. Ruta Hill, the Outer West region, I was the deputy regional manager there. So I was running what they call care services there. So services for people with brain injuries, services for children who were going into childcare but had disabilities, so providing workers for them. So helping them adjust and stay into normal childcare, but with a worker with them to help them, you know, manage the supports and whatever they needed during the day. So they were there with them. And we also had an acquired brain injury program, which was a recreational program, and other children's services such as respite care services. And we also started CareLink, and community options program. So I was managing quite a variety of different programs. So 
all this was helping me not only in my work life, but as well as in my personal life. Because having a child with a disability, I was learning what to do at home, what to look out for. Inadmittedly, you know, yeah. you, you you get to learn things about, you know, oh, I'm actually a carer. It took me a while. I was yeah. busy running carer support program. And <laughs> one day it hit me that I'm one of these people I'm sitting here talking to, mm-hmm. telling them what they should be doing. And I'm one of those. I, I'm a carer myself. It didn't, it took me a while that I needed help as well and I needed care, but I, I knew that what I needed to do because I was doing it at work. I just had to turn it on myself and realize that hang, I'm one of these people who actually, who I'm sending and referring to different services. I am one of those people and I need to look after myself as a carer yeah. and make sure my child has the right services as well. So all my jobs were helping with that. That's also quite challenging because you... You want to use those networks and those resources, but at the same time, you know, how much of your personal life do you want to disclose? Exactly. You know, that's quite a vulnerable position to be in. It is, yeah. But in that job as well, that's when my son started getting sicker. Mm. The downturn in his health started. So, of course, I had to let the regional manager know that I could leave any time if, if something happens. So everybody yeah. knew that, you know. This was what was happening, but only him. The other staff didn't know that half the time I was at the hospital all night or whatever. I just came in, did my work, went home, you know. So, but yeah, it was it was good learning about all the services that were available. So later on when I needed them, I knew where to go. So th- that was a big help. And from there, where did I go next? Oh, my life has been running around a lot. <laughs> from Anglicare, I went to Willoughby City Council mm-hmm. as a community aid coordinator. And the reason I left Anglicare was because my son was getting sicker and I needed something lighter than what I was doing, you know. And with that, it was just managing different volunteer programs. So linen services, shopping services, that sort of stuff, which was easier. And they were more flexible with time as well. Like I could come in early, come in later. They were quite flexible. I've been lucky that even working there, I mean, the, the people, the managers, my managers and all the people there, the mayor and everybody were very understanding of having a child with a disability. If I needed to go, I needed to go, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, that was a, a good job as well. So I learned different skills there as well. Learned about different um, services in the community, you know, shopping buses, whatever. Each job I learned different skills. Yeah. And from Willoughby, my son, I think I was there a year and my son was getting sicker. So I thought even this isn't working because I cannot be, running a service with volunteers and I think at that time he actually had a stroke Mm. and ended up in hospital and most of the time I make the decision that I'm very pedantic about my work and if I'm not doing my work to my expectations I prefer that I leave and find something else because I didn't want the work to suffer so I moved and went to um, Lottie Stewart Hospital to run a volunteer service there and yeah I was there for another year I think and that was better because it was only, I think it was nine to one. So it was a short day. And my, when my son came out of hospital, I was able to pick him up from school at once. So he only had half the day. But even that, he started getting sicker. And a year later, I thought, even this is not going to work. Because that's when uh, he was in hospital for such a long time. And I thought, this is not going to work. I have to find something different. Yeah. So that's when I applied for a position on a palliative care project. So looking at cold communities how they used palliative care services. So it was an action research project. Hmm. I think it was about 
28 hours a week. And it was very flexible. And I liked it because if I can't work the 28 hours this week because my son's in hospital, then I could go on the Friday and work whatever and the next week work longer hours. So I was able to sort of be flexible about that and work different hours if I needed to. I could even work up to seven at night if I needed to. When my son was well, I could make up the hours so that by the fortnight they were all balancing out. So um, that really helped as well. And it also helped the fact that it was a three-way project. It was multicultural health, chronic and complex, and palliative care. Mm -hmm. So when my son became palliative care and they told me at the hospital, I knew exactly what they were talking about because I was on the team that was going out. It was a multidisciplinary team. So I was doing the research using the multidisciplinary team. So I was sitting in on their meetings, going with them to the houses when they're going to see people at home and in the hospital and everything. So I was part of the team. So as I was writing the project, I was learning because I could even see with my son that, oh, okay, we're on oxygen now. I knew what stage we're at because mm. of work. I was learning the journey people go through when they're dying and when they're in palliative care and what services are available as well. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of a parallel. And I always say that with my jobs, it seemed like each job that I was getting was training me in advance for what was coming. You know, and people always say, how did you manage? And I say, it's almost like I had the training before whatever was happening to my son happened. Mm -hmm. When it became palliative care and they were telling me, it wasn't news because I knew what palliative care was. I knew what chronic and complex is you know, and what services are available. I knew that you're going home with an oxygen tank. I'd been purchasing oxygen for people in community options and stuff. So I knew everything. And I was able to be proactive, like get myself shower chairs and things like that from the community pool before anybody told me. I just saw that, no, you can't sit. You need to be sitting on a chair in the shower. So I myself would go. I knew where the, the pool was, where you could loan equipment. And I could go there and, and get a loan of equipment and stuff like that. So it really helped. So that job was, it was a godsend because it helped me look at the direction we're going and know what we needed to do and know what I needed to do, you know. And in fact, somebody was asking, how did you, you and your family cope? And I said, because I knew what all the services were when the mm -hmm. time came. I'm the one who was standing there, you know, telling people, you need to use the sibling program. You need to use this. <laughs> and I thought, hang on, my kids are siblings, you know. Yeah. And I could start noticing and all the things were telling other people that this is what you'd notice and this is what you see and these are the effects if you don't use our service. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking, hang on, I need to start taking care of myself and my kids the way I was telling other people to do. Yeah. So all the referrals I was making, I was thinking, I need to start actually looking at my kids, what do they need, you know, and tap into some of the things that we needed, mm -hmm. you know, and things like, respite care for my son so we could have a break at home and also I was the one who was preaching to them that don't you know you can't do it yourself and you need to you know take care of yourself if you fail then you can't take care of your son and I was thinking hang on that's I should take some of my own yeah. advice so all the jobs I had really helped me to sort of be able to help in my own situation with my kids as well and after that the jobs that I got after my son passed away so the last one I was at was with the palliative care when the palliative care job, it was a project, and my son passed away while I was doing that. It was a fixed-term one, so it was a 12-month one. And he passed away just a few months before the project finished. Mm -hmm. After that, I got a job with DADAC at the Assessment and Referral Center as a regional team leader. So I was managing all the team leaders at the Assessment Center. 
So not the ones who are in the metro, but everybody else all around New South Wales. So I was traveling quite a bit and looking after the teams there. Yeah, I loved that job as well. You know, did a little bit of it. And within all this, what did I do? I went back to school mm. when I was doing the job at Lottie Stewart because I thought my, I'm not using my brain enough. And I think I always thought, what happens when my son dies and I'm just doing this part-time job? I needed something to challenge me. Right. So I started doing a master's degree, which I finished about three years later. I did a master's in social policy. Mm-hmm. And this was while I was working at the hospital because I wanted to see how is policy made. I was quite interested in how is social policy made and working in the, in the field. I wanted to know a little bit more about that. And... One of the papers I wrote for that master's degree, it's really funny that you fall into all these things. Because I had children and being in the hospital, being of a different culture, you start noticing things in hospitals. And I started thinking about my kids are black kids. They're going to be living in Australia. And I'm a black woman living in Australia. And I'd had some experiences in the hospital as a, a black woman, which later on, I came to recognize that it was a cultural thing. I'm an educated person, right? Got degrees and everything. And I went to hospital and this doctor was talking to me about they were suspecting I had a heart problem. I didn't in the end, but they were doing all these tests and I was collapsing and fainting. And in the end, it was just my thyroid, but it took a long time to diagnose because mm. it doesn't present the way normal thyroids did. So this doctor was asking me, do I feel like jumping the gap? And I said, yes, I didn't realize what the gap was. I wasn't from Australia. <laughs> so only later that, uh, what the hell? And he put me on antidepressants. So they're on high alert now. This was a cultural thing. I'm not Australian. I wouldn't yeah. know what the gap was. I thought he meant literally like there's a gap and you want to achieve something. To, to close the gap so you feel better. That's what I, I thought he meant. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. And he put me on antidepressants. And it wasn't until I went back to my GP. And she said, oh, I've got the report. And I said, this is the medication you gave me. I said, go rubbish. I just threw it in the bin. You're not depressed. But that's when I realized that even though I'm educated, there's still a lot of gaps in the health service mm-hmm. simply because of culture. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's why when I started doing my master's, that's one of the papers I did, you know, multicultural affairs. And since at the time my son was in hospital all the time and I was doing a master's degree, guess what I did? Mm-hmm. I started working on the EAPS, which is the Ethnic Affairs Priority Statement. Because right. in the hospital, I could get all the material from their library because I'd be sitting there with him. He's sick, lying on my laps, and I could have all my books around me. And I, got, I couldn't go to a library, so I went into the hospital library Amazing. and got some stuff out of there, Westmeath Children's Hospital. And I thought, at least I can do something while I'm in here. Mm-hmm. You know, so I started writing about the ethnic affairs priority statement because that's what they use to make planning for people from different cultures. And even my other um, paper that I wrote, I did a comparison of uh, multiculturalism between Australia and Canada just to see what the differences are and how we can improve multiculturalism in Australia. So one of the next jobs that I got, I actually went into multicultural health. Mm-hmm eventually but in between that I had other jobs so in between that yeah so from Dadak when my son passed away and I was still doing the degree I went to work for Motor Accident Authority just for eight months was a pilot project you know they started looking at people with spinal injuries injured in car accident it was a pilot project I was there for eight months and from there that's when I went to health 
And I decided, let me go into multicultural health. And that was one of the first jobs I got in multicultural health. And it was a senior multicultural health planning and projects officer. Mm-hmm. And then I did a few other projects over the next three years that I also did. And these were all maternity relief. And the next one I got was a multicultural education officer. And the next one was multicultural health promotions officer. So I was there because I was really interested in the ethnic affairs priority statement because all health services had to have those, how to work with migrants and people from different cultures. And I thought, we're living in this country. My kids are living here. And after my experience with health, I thought I need to go in there and see how policy is made. And I was doing the degree as well with how policy is made. So it all sort of blended in together. Mm. So I stayed at Multicultural Health for a few years. I was there for three years. And then about four years, I think, after my son died, I loved the job. I was there doing, I was running different projects, the multicultural, multilingual services. You know, we were doing all the training and education, like for diabetes, you know, breast screening, whatever, taking the women. They were learning about different cultures, training the people who were training the communities, you know. So loving it, you know, running all these programs, making sure, looking at all the health resources and that were coming out to make sure they were catering for people from cold communities, you know, and also uh, making sure that everything that the hospital was doing, it was in line with what people from different cultures would be able to access and understand that in the right language and all that. So I was loving the job and doing it and really into it. And then I'm sitting at my desk working one day and one of my colleagues walks in and throws a sheet of paper onto my desk. She goes, Patricia, this is your job. You love it or hate it. I don't know if you're ready for it. And since my son had died, I hadn't been back to kids hospital. Actually, in the Westmead hospital, it's just we were in Cumberland, which was just behind the kids hospital. And I hadn't had the nerve to even walk near that hospital. I always drove the long way around just to avoid driving past the hospital. So she threw this there and I looked at it and it was a job with ACI, yep. Agency for Clinical Innovation. It was a transition coordinator. I looked at the job and I thought, yeah, <laughs> this is the job for me. So the transition coordinator works with kids moving from kids services, pediatric service to adult services across New South Wales. And there was three of us. So this job was for the Western area, which ran from around Wyong up to Broken Hill, that end, the Western part of New South Wales. Yeah, it's involved working with clinicians. And I'd been doing a lot of training, even with my multicultural role, we're doing a lot of training of staff, how to work with um, people of different cultures, how to fill in the ethnic affairs priority statement and how to meet it and also how they can work better. So I had been doing a lot of training and I also just finished, actually, it was really ironic, I just finished my search for in assessment and training with Western Sydney Area Health because it was going to be part of my role that, you know, I needed to get that. And I just finished it. And this job actually required it Mm. because this job involved working with clinicians and training them if need be in how to what transition is and how it works and also bringing kids across to the adult hospitals and training the staff in the adult hospitals how to work with the kids with different disabilities. Also making sure that they got the correct care, that they were linked into appropriate services. That was really important. They had the resources and also making sure the parents had the resources and the knowledge and what was going on and making sure they understood how clinics work, how the adult services work and meeting them in the kids' hospitals or 
not only hospitals, but also pediatric services in the community so that they get used to you and then going with them to the adult hospital in the first few appointments so that they're comfortable and helping them to ask questions and get comfortable and training them how this is how you do when you go in there. This is the questions you ask and things like that. So just getting them comfortable with the idea that there's a change and also we're there to provide support and advocacy and information as well. So yes, so I took the job and I really loved it and I was there for six years. So it was a bit of traveling, but that was okay. I don't mind traveling. I enjoyed working with all the clinicians, going into their clinics all over the place. I've been double in a clinic one day, in Orange one day, I'd be in a broken hill. I was all over the place, but I loved it and it was really interesting for me. And I think also having had a sick child, it was easy for me to identify with the people I was working with. And I was able to give advice on things like if the child's really sick and you go to the clinic, I could identify with how they're feeling and empathize, you know, appropriately because, yeah, having a child in, sick in a hospital. And I also found that I had a good rapport with the young people as well because kids who are sick, I had had a teenager who was sick. So it was easy for me to have a good rapport with young people, talk to them and make them feel comfortable and, you know, make myself available so they could call me and tell me whatever they wanted to tell me. And it was fine, you know? So yeah, it was, it was really interesting. And I loved that job. The reason I left, my husband got the fourth year I was with, I was there for six years. In the fourth year, my husband was diagnosed with bowel cancer and also a few different cancers after that, it spread everywhere. So that was a turning point as well. But as I said, with everything, I had been in the cancer care unit. That was where I was based when I was doing that project with chronic complex, multicultural and chronic. So the minute nobody needed to tell me when he put the x-ray up, my exact thoughts was shit. Yeah. (laughs) Because I looked at that cancer. I knew he wouldn't have known what the hell was looking at. But having been with kids in hospitals and, you know, being in the cancer care, we used to put those up and talk about it. And I thought, whoa, that's big. Yeah. I was like, wow, no. You know, this is late stage and, you know, I, I knew. So that's why I said everything that I, I went through in my life, people always ask me, how did you manage? I already had the knowledge and the training before everything happened. I could look at that x-ray and the doctor looked at me. He knew I knew because he knew I worked in health and he knew what job I did. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's bad. But I didn't say anything. But so all these things helped. And that's when I decided after I tried working in that job, you can't travel and be all over the place if you've got somebody who's sick. It didn't work for very long. So I think after about a year and a half, I was like, no, I've got to give this job up. As much as I love it, I have to. That's when I sort of took time out, three months long service leave. And yeah, I thought I can't go back. It's not going to work. So that's when I found a job with eye care. And I explained to them, even when I started, that this is the situation. My husband's got cancer. I may need to go out anytime. But they were like quite happy with, you know, well, we'll deal with each thing as it happens. And as it happens, they did. They were just a wonderful place to work for. You know, I can't say enough about, you know, work-life balance was great. When I needed time off, when I needed to lessen the number of days I worked, it was fine. I went down to three days a week. That was fine. So I knew that I needed the one day I could work from home because I knew he had an appointment that day on whatever it was, the Thursday for his chemo or whatever. They were quite happy to say, okay, I'll, I'll work from home that day, take him. 
and then come back and continue working. So everything was adjustable and flexible. So that was really good. In fact, I was the first person, you know, before this working from home started, mm. I was the first person my boss said, we're going to start this. And I was given the first laptop. Yeah. And everybody was like, what? You're going to work from home. <laughs> and I was picked in our team simply because I had a husband who was sick and it would be beneficial for me to work from home mm. on the one day that he needed to be at his eight o'clock, whatever, a Westmead appointment to get his radiation and be home in half an hour. But I was able to do that because I could start, you know, the flexible hours, I'd be home by 10 and I could work from home. Yeah. So I was one of the first people to get a laptop, the first person in our team, actually, to get the laptop to be able to work from home. So that was re- really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. But again, even with all the people I was working with, because even at IK, I was working a lot with kids as well. Most of the people I worked with were kids, but I was also working with other age groups, which I'm able to, because that Anglican worked, you know, across all age groups with um, older people as well. And with Willoughby, you work with older people as well. So, yeah, I had the training. So coming to IK, I, I had not only experience as a professional in my work, but experience as a carer as well. Yeah. So caring after somebody who's older and somebody who's dying and somebody who dies. I had the whole sort of gamut of experience in my own personal life that made it easier for me to see things that other people probably wouldn't see. Mm-hmm. I could see when a carer is stressed and the tone and the language and the, you know, I was able to identify, you know, And also with some of the programs I've worked with, like even working at kids' hospital, I'm able to have little ideas that a normal person who hasn't worked in a hospital wouldn't have. I've learned a lot of little things along the way, simple things like put a silk sheet on the bed to slide, you know, little things that you don't need a whole to have the, you know, sliding board. I learned in community services that you can just put one of the sheets at the bottom, you know, across where the laps are. You can put a silk sheet. And it's easier to turn the, you know, think little tips like that. And I was able to impart some of these little tricks to people I met, the parents I met that try this. This might help because I had learned all these little things along the way. So I was able to be a better social worker, I guess, because I had Mm -hmm. lots of tips in my little box of tricks. Yeah, toolbox. Yeah, (laughs) a little toolbox. Were there any scenarios where you felt it was appropriate to disclose to families or to clients that you'd been through something similar? Very few. But there Mm. was one or two where I did simply say, you know, I had a child with this because they were so distressed and didn't understand. And I was able to say, look, it has happened to me and this is what we did. You need to, simple things like you need to get us help. Like people who are refusing to have any help, you know, we can do it ourselves. And I was able to say, look, I use these services because they worked for me and with my family and getting counseling and stuff like that. It's not, it's not that you're not coping, but you need to have all the help that you can get. It's really good. And I think the other one that I disclosed were they didn't want their child to go into respite care, you know, and I was just needed to explain that sometimes you need a break. And you have a breakdown if you don't. And I explained how it worked for us, how the child, as long as it's a place where the child is happy and you go there and ensure that the child is safe and happy, you should be able to relax and they're happy and you're happy. You're getting some rest when they come back. Yes. So very few people who I did that with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, some people knew who I was. <laughs> right. Because some people's kids went to my son's school and they were like, are you peace, mom? It's like, oh. Okay. We've seen the picture of him and there's a plaque at school. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah that's mm, So sometimes you can't escape yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you can't. Yeah. 
And then you left eye care not too long ago. Not too long. It's two years now. I can't believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I think after my husband passed away, which was four years ago now, I was run down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I needed to stop. I didn't know what my life was going to be. You know, when people die, even though he was sick for five years, there was always the hope that something would happen and you'd get better and life would go on as we planned. But of course, things happen. And I suppose I got to the stage where, yeah, I just needed to stop, really stop and take track of my life. And I think I also needed to sell the house and move because I need I needed a fresh start. I needed a fresh start. That's why I've ended up on the Central Coast. <laughs> mm-hmm. My family were horrified when I just announced that I'm selling and I'm moving to the coast. You don't know anybody. How are you going to cope? And, you know. What's going to happen to you? It's too far, mom. I'd, I'd actually wanted to go to Nelson Bay because my husband and I used to go there a lot. And we had planned to retire in Nelson Bay. That was a dream. Mm-hmm. But I thought maybe it's too far for the kids. I'll go halfway. So that's how I ended up here on this part of the Central Coast. I just got in the car and drove until I walked into this house. I thought, yeah, this is the house. Mm-hmm. So I've ended up here and I had no idea what was going to happen. But I thought... Whatever's going to happen will reveal itself. So I've been here a year in July. I love it. You know, I got myself a job at the local church, the Anglican church, two days a week, just in the office. And I thought, is this all I'm going to do? But the funny thing is I got the shopping center. There's a lot of group homes for people with intellectual disabilities. And when I walk through the shopping center, it's like, hello. And, you know, it's like, it's a magnet. <laughs> hello. And I'm like, hi, how are you? And they start having a conversation with me. And I'm thinking, this is really weird. You know, I've come to this place where, you know, these people just stop me in the how, why are they stopping me? There's hundreds of people in the shopping yeah. center. And they start telling me their story. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you going to buy? I'm going to lunch. And I start having and um, my friends who were visiting me once, they stopped and said, Do you know those kids? And I said, No, I don't. <laughs> but I just have that rapport with kids, you know. And I'm like, no, I don't yeah. know them, but I'll start conversations with them. So I'm happy to tell you that I've actually just been offered the job, which I've accepted, working as an intellectual disability care coordinator. So I just laughed. I said, right up my alley. And they said, one day a week. Yeah. I said, that's fine for me. I don't want too many days. It's just enough for me to dip my toe in. And yeah. I was missing that going into the hospital. I've always said I loved working in a hospital and people might find that strange, but I did. Mm-hmm. There's something about a hospital that's yeah, I get it. just being able to help people. And having spent so much time in a hospital, I want people to have a better hospital experience. Yeah, Because I had such a good experience in the hospitals, most of the time, there, there were one or two, but most of the time, I had a great experience with hospitals and I've always wanted to be in a hospital and give back a little bit. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be big, even if it's just a smile. Cause I remember one day walking through Westmead hospital and this always sticks with me walking in the corridor and I stopped and smiled at this lady and she stopped me. She says, thank you for making my day. You smiled at me. Oh. And I'm like, <laughs> I said, you know, I just smiled at her like, hello. You know, and I yeah. smiled and she was like, Thank you. She stopped me. Like, thank you. For, and I'm thinking, that's all you need. You, you know, it doesn't take a lot. You just need somebody to see you, mm-hmm. you know. And that's why I thought I'd love to be back working in health. I never thought it would happen because I didn't want a full-time job. And at my level, you know, the level I'm at, there are not that many jobs that are part-time. Yeah. You know, 
in the place where I want to work, you know, I'm quite happy mm -hmm. to be working with, you know, clinicians and people with intellectual disabilities, helping them to look at the strategies and how we can training staff to be able to work better with when they come into the hospital and also troubleshooting when they come in and there's issues, I'm the person they can come to and call and see what we can do about that. So yeah, I'm mm -hmm. really excited. And You've also written a book in that time and you're working on your second one. Tell me a bit about that. written a book. It's called Buembia's Mother and it's my journey as a mother with a child with a disability and a chronic illness mm -hmm. yeah, and a terminal illness at the same time. There's a group in America of young ladies who showcase people from different cultures, particularly black people, and who have done something remarkable or something that they can showcase. It's called Insaka mm -hmm. Talk Show. And I was just on it yesterday. So I was just watching it today because they interviewed me on Thursday. They normally have it live on a Sunday in America. But because I'm, I'm in Australia and the time difference, I thought I'm not waking up at three in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> so they said we'll, we'll pre-record it on the Thursday. So I was just watching that. So that's talking a lot about the book yeah. and the influence of my son and my life as a little bit about that. Mm. So it, it's called Insaka, N-S-A-K-A, -A, I think. Yeah, cool. How was that process of sharing that difficult and personal experience for you? No, I didn't have any problem. Yeah. It was difficult writing some scenes because it's very, in fact, they were even saying it on the program that it's very detailed. <laughs> she was even laughing, saying the way Patricia's written the book, it's like I'm walking into the room where she is and mm -hmm. I'm seeing her walk through the house, right. literally. Like it's so, it's so well written that those were her words, that I can see it's like you're following her life, mm -hmm. walking step by step through her life. So it's, it's, it's on Amazon. It's called Gwembia's Mother. Yeah. Yeah, so it, it just talks about having a child with a disability and what you go through, what the family goes through and how you come through it. And mostly written because a lot of people used to ask me, how come you're so brave and how come you've gone, you know, you don't appear like, you know, the family didn't break down. You guys seem to handle it really well. So I thought, don't keep asking me, I'll write the book. Mm -hmm. And also because my son was such a remarkable young man that he touched so many people. Yeah. I mean, even to this day, I'll be walking in a shopping center and I'll go, hi, are you Bees, mom? It's like, <laughs> yes. We used to come to Bees school and we, we were the, you know, whatever the peer support group, you know, who used to come to the school and Bee was one of the people who played t-ball with, you know. He just made like, such oh an my impact. God. Yeah. Or I'd walk into Davis Jones and some woman stopped me. She goes, are you Bees, mom? I'm like, yes. And I'm like, who's this person yeah. who's, at, you know. And then she goes, oh, I used to work at the reception at the kids' hospital, you know. Right. And now she's working in Myers, you know, like she was security or something. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, okay, what are you doing? You know, and I'm like, oh, I'm writing a book. And I'd walk into a doctor's surgery somewhere where, <laughs> you know, I just happened to, I need some medication or something at some medical center. Hi, I used to work in immunology. Wow. <laughs> I used to take blood and how's B? Like, B died. It's like, yeah. So even now, you know, there's still people. Wow. Who remember him, yeah. But just for what, such a small person to have lived such a short life and to have had such an impact and touched so many people, it's so beautiful. In fact, about three months ago, I went to Bear Cottage because mm. I'm now on the Parent Advisory Committee. It was the first one. And there were three people who were there because he was one of the first kids to go to Bear Cottage in the first year that it was run. And there's still three staff who remember him. Mm. 
and I was telling them, do you realize it's 20 years ago that he was here? Wow. They're like, what? You mean I've been here that long? I said, yep. And they were all talking about it. Remember when he did this? Remember? Because he was naughty. Remember when he, you know, he did this and he did that. I'm like, guys, you still remember? And all the other families like, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, that boy on the picture, the cheeky little boy. Oh, the cheeky little one. You know, yeah. So even now, people still remember him. Do you think writing came more naturally to you than other people? I'm just thinking back to the social policy and all of the like community work and funding submissions and all of that sort of stuff that you would have had to do for work. Did, was this easy for you or was it still really hard slog? It wasn't hard slog. It was hard emotionally. Mm-hmm. So not the actual writing. The, the writing came easy. Even when I read it now, I think, did I write that? Because mm. it just seems like it's flowing. And I'm thinking, how did I even think of all this stuff? Yeah. The difficult parts where somebody was asking me, how did, did you write that? Didn't you cry? And I said, I think because I've always wear my professional hat a lot. Yeah. You know, that when I was writing, when, even when I read it now, I'm not me. Mm-hmm. I'm crying for that young girl. Even when I was writing to her, I was thinking, my God, she didn't know what was going to hit her. It's like a third person rather than yeah. me. Yeah. It's almost like I'm writing about this person. And I think it's also a reflection, like I'm standing here now back in hindsight almost. There's this person who went through all that. When you're living it, you're not thinking about it. Mm-hmm. You're living day to day. You're just coping. You're doing, you know. I was so focused that my son's going to have the best life. That's all we focused on. We weren't looking at, oh, he's going to die, you know, even though we knew it was coming. But we were focused on every day. It's like he had to see me happy. He had to have the best life. We're going to laugh. We're going to have the best holiday as much as we can. We'll do whatever we can in whatever way we can do it, you know. So reading this book for me was like, oh, did this really happen? This is odd. Not the writing, but the reading back. Mm-hmm. it's like, my God, she didn't know what was going to hit her. Because when you're writing it, you're writing it in chunks, you're writing in paragraphs, you're writing, and then you put them all together. Yeah. But when you read it as a whole, you know, because I wasn't writing it as I was going like A, B, C, D. I'd write scenes. You know, something would touch me, I'd write a scene, I'd write a scene, and then i just sort of put it all together, mm-hmm. you know. So it's when I got the final product and I was reading right through it, I'm like, I was almost crying for her, like, you know, she doesn't know what's coming. Look at her, she's so young and naive, and I could see how young and naive I was, you know, how I just almost, like, literally stumbled through without thinking, not knowing that this was what's going to happen at the end, you know. Yeah. Even though I knew it was going to happen, but I didn't know how it was going to affect everyone, mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah, it's it's like every time I read it, it's like it's somebody, the poor thing, you know. That was a lot to cope with, I'd be thinking. But not like that was a lot for me to cope with. That was a lot for this. How could she even do that? You know? mm. yeah. Well, given that you wrote it kind of like a play, it sounds like almost like you've got your scenes, would it ever eventuate into maybe a movie or something, a different format? <laughs> Somebody's actually taken it to have a look at and is thinking about it. <laughs> That's exciting. Yeah, I've got somebody in the family is a producer, produces movies. Uh-huh. So they said they re- they said they're gonna read it, but I don't know if anything will come out of it. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah. And what's book two? What's happening there? Book two is actually a follow-up mm-hmm. of this book. Because this book ends when my son dies. But the question because I did a writing class, as I said, IK were very flexible. So when I was working the four days a week during the last six months that I was working there in 
2021, I think it is. I actually took a writing course on the Friday, paper yeah. writing. And in the class, I'd written quite a lot more than what I put in the book. And the girls who I was in the class with just said to me, you got to write the second, you got to talk about Mwango. A thing that happened that was really weird is my husband passed away on my son's 16th anniversary of the day he died. Wow. At the, around the same time in the oh, morning when the sun's coming you. up. Yeah. So they all said, you got to write that story because he was also quite a special man, you know. And the comparison of the two deaths and the two lives would be really interesting because I'd written a, a few um, scenarios about him, you know, in the class and I'd read it to them and they had said, you gotta, you got to do Mwango's story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the next book. So there's three stories coming and the next one as well because people keep telling me, how do you do this? And the next one is me being a widow. I never expected I would be living in this house by myself. The book will explore how unexpected the life after my husband passed away has been and how different it is from what I had imagined it would be. And how I always thought I was a strong person and, like, I'll be fine. I wonder how much different that experience would have been back in a different country versus Australia where the health system is quite good, right? Yeah. There's positives and negatives, right? Some of the things like I wrote about in the book, if my son had died in Zambia, the burden isn't on the people who lose the child. Mm. It's on the community. Right. We would not have been organizing a funeral. We would have been just asked, you know, and then other people would have arranged everything. You don't get involved in it. You sit in a room, people take care of you, they feed you, they bath you, they brush your hair, they look after you. Other people do all the work that needs to be done. They'll hand you the flowers to put on, you know. Mm. So you're not doing all that stuff. You know, they'll just bring the readings. Are these okay? Are there any particular songs you want? Most of, They'll do it all, you know, so it's very different. And there'll be somebody staying with you until you're okay. People don't leave. There's always some family member or somebody who will stay at the house until they know that, okay, things are okay. They might stay a year. Some people stay six months, two months, whatever. They'll gauge that this person is okay and somebody stays with them all the time until everything's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Children will be taken by grandparents or aunties or whatever until they make sure that, okay, now it's the unit's okay. Wow. You'll be supported. People will cook food, you know, the, you know, yeah. So it's different scenarios. So even though you wouldn't get some of the professional services, you actually get them in a different form. Sure. Yeah. You mentioned that while your son was alive, the treatments and outcomes for kids with MPS2 were not great. It was a, a terminal illness. Which makes me think perhaps it might be improved now. Is that any better in terms of treatment? Yes, it's no longer a terminal illness. What happens with his body, he was missing an enzyme that breaks down the natural sugars in the body. Mm-hmm. So other people's bodies flush out the natural sugars that your body produces. Yeah. His was missing an enzyme to break down those sugars. Mm-hmm. So they get stored. So it's what's called a connective tissue disorder. Yeah. It's like glug. It gets stored in the connective tissue. And that's what causes like in the heart and the lungs and the spleen and the liver, it gets stored in there and also in the nerves as well. So it could cause, that's why it causes a bit of intellectual disability mm. as well. Yep. So it causes a lot of stiffness. But also pain, right? Sounds like it'd be very painful. Oh, it's more stiffness, okay. but in the heart eventually, yes. So now they've, they've got the replacement enzyme. Mm. 
So through infusions, you, wow. you can go in and get infusions. And now I think even, actually it was my daughter who was working in a hotel, but she did hospitality. And she said these two kids came in with their parents and they were from one of the Scandinavian countries. They actually had an implant mm. with a little pack that was, the infusion was going so they could travel. That's amazing. You know, so it was infusing. I don't know what it's like now, but before in Australia, you had to go into Westmead to go and get the infusion every whatever right. few months. But now apparently they've got where the pack get an implant and then it's doing itself and the pack you carry it on your hip and stuff like that. So yeah, it's come a long way. That's so great. Yeah, it was very, I was very sad because it was probably three years after he died mm. that Australia announced that it was available. It had been available in the UK, in the United States, because they're always quick to get it. Okay. You know, but it, in Australia, it was costing like 130000 a year or something. Mm. So it was like prohibitive. But even by that point, it would have done so much damage to his little body yeah, as well. Yeah, it was too much damage for him to go on it. Yeah. 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 Wow. Yeah, so it's all a learning curve, I suppose. And yeah. What incredible experience. <laughs> I can also see that intersect of law and social work in terms of like your early days of really being passionate about that international law and justice yeah. and policy development and research. There are so many aspects of that side of law that lend themselves really well to social work. So I can see the crossover, even if it wasn't immediately obvious to you as a young young woman. But it's helped me in my work now mm. because all the basics you learn in the first few years of um, law school, they're the basics. It's like law of torts, you know, contract, law of contract. So even when I'm looking at something, I know to look at it with a, a different eye from what somebody would be looking at, yeah. a contract. Anything, whatever I'm reading or writing, I'm more able to say, ah, that word shouldn't be there. That might cause problems because I've had the basic training. Mm -hmm. That's just a general, you know, thing that you can carry over. Yeah. So when I'm looking at stuff, I'm able to say, mm, no, no, maybe we shouldn't use that word or you shouldn't actually say that, you know, so you, you, you've got more of an insight into being aware of legal stuff, mm. how things could go. And social work gives you a bit more of a critical lens as well over yeah, things. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have so much loved hearing about this even just from the very beginnings when you felt like you were floating around back in the US trying to figure out where you belong yeah. and you just happened to have a professor who recognized your interest and your abilities and that first role that you had out or the first couple of roles I guess that were really diverse and there was a lot of freedom to make it your own to really develop the program and, and the projects and and then to come to Australia where you were just kind of bombarded with this really challenging news and having to adjust to life in a new country on top of all of that, identifying as a carer, being vulnerable in both your workspace and also your personal space, just amazing. And then being able to have all that substantial experience across different lifespans, across different disabilities, and then working both face-to-face -face and back-end work all of the advocacy and using your experience to provide education to other people, supporting health outcomes for workers, clinicians, community members. And the multicultural aspect, don't forget, that's really important. Absolutely, yes. It comes in handy. Mm. So helpful. But, I mean, you're right, it's not the most conventional social work journey, but it's so obvious to me how all of these roles are social work roles. They're not called social work roles necessarily, but you've got all of your training and experience that you can transfer over to these settings. Yeah, I just, I feel like 
It's so unfortunate that your life imitated your work in some ways, that you've had to go through all of these challenging experiences. Like in some way I wish you could have been a clown or a kid's face painter at, you know, <laughs> birthday parties because then your life would have been very different. But, you know, you've had the experiences you've had. You've had so many wonderful ways of touching people's lives and, and having your family members touch people in ways that you couldn't even imagine and you're still working out today. So... I'm excited about your new role as well and, and this opportunity to hopefully help others to have a more positive hospital experience. And, yeah, I think regardless of what you do from this point, it's going to have a huge impact and I really look forward to seeing where it lands. Is there anything that we haven't had an opportunity to talk about that you want to mention? Oh, did you know that I had, while I was with ACI, I actually co-authored... Uh... Oh, the clinical handbook? Yes. Yep. Amazing. <laughs> Tell me about that. Okay, where is it? It's a clinical handbook in adolescent medicine. It's a guide for health professionals working with children and young adults. So I co-authored one of the chapters in that book. And the book is by Kate Steinbeck and Michael Cole. Mm-hmm. So these were a lot of different professionals, some of them from overseas, who um, contributed to this book. So there's quite, there are quite a lot of people. I think we're over 100 of us who wrote but a few people wow. wrote each chapter. So we, we talked about transition teenagers in adult hospitals, so young people in adult hospitals. Mm-hmm. So that was an exciting project, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can find a link to that and also the Insaka show that you were mentioning. I'll find a link and I'll pop it in the show notes. One of the other ones that I was involved in was called Journeys and it was done by um, Palliative Care Australia. It was part of when B died, the kids' hospital wanted some parents. It was called Palliative Care for Children and Teenagers. It was developed by Palliative Care Australia. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I was on the carers reference group, and it's called Journeys. Yep. So they use that. It's like used in the kids' hospital. They give it to parents who are going through kids who are palliative. So it's got different resources. It's like a resource book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that was one of the things I was involved with. Yeah, so I've been involved with a few little projects. Just a few. (laughs) (laughs) And you've got a few more coming up, so never a dull day. Yeah, yeah. Keep myself busy. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time, for sharing your experience and your story and your social work journey. And, yeah, hopefully it's inspirational to so many people. And also uh, my book is actually being reviewed. I don't know if you get um, Compassion Friends. Do you know Compassion Friends? Mm -hmm. It's a peer support group for people who have lost children. Okay. So do you want me to show it to you? I can... Yeah, yeah. So this one, but the one that they com- is coming out is going to be the one for, I think it's October or November uh-huh. this year. Okay. Yeah. So it will have been, yeah, released by the time this episode comes out. So that's perfect. Compassionate Friends New South Wales. It's funded by New South Wales Health and Bear Cottage and a few other organizations so in every newsletter they actually review a few books based on palliative care so they asked if they could review my my book so there'll be a review in that <laughs> I hope it's favorable that's amazing <laughs> it just continues to reach more people I know there's just this little book that I wrote and it's starting to just <laughs> yeah snowballs in the most wonderful yeah. way helping so many other people no, I'm very happy. Like, even though people who have been buying it mostly, I'm happy with. It's not the sort of book, I guess, you go out and you go into a bookshop and you think, I'll buy this book now. I think it reaches the right target group, mm-hmm. the people who need it. Yeah. 
So the people who have had come back and say they would like a copy of people who either have a child who's their daughter works in with kids, you know, they're a physio and the daughter gets it. The mother gives it to her. She wants the other physios to read it and she gets more copies, you know, or somebody who's got a child with a disability, their daughter or their granddaughter has a disability. And, you know, so it's just sort of going to people who actually need it, yeah. which is what I'm happy about. Yeah, nice. Well, hopefully this is another way that it can reach different audiences. So, yeah, encourage people to get in touch and let me know if they want more information. Yep. Thank you again, Patricia. I'd love love this opportunity to speak with you. So thank you for your time. It's been lovely. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks for joining me this week. If you would like to continue this discussion or ask anything of either myself or Patricia, please visit my Anchor page at anchor.fm slash socialworkspotlight. You can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or you can email swspotlightpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Please also let me know if there is a particular topic you'd like discussed, or if you or another person you know would like to be featured on the show. Next episode's guest is Kristen, with 17 years of social work experience in youth justice, child protection and the family court. Kristen qualified in Australia, but has lived and worked in the UK since 2012. Now alongside her social work role, Kristen supports other overseas social workers making the move to the UK. I release a new episode every two weeks. Please subscribe to my podcast so you're notified when this next episode is available. See you next time.